we come today um, as a church to lift up your name, to praise and worship you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you that you are our firm foundation. You are the rock upon which we build our life. We put our, uh, our hope in you and not in men, not even powerful men, uh, even the President of the United States. And we pray for him and his administration, Lord, though, that he would be wise, that he would use his power for good, and that he would humble himself before you, Father, he and the other leaders, that they would pray, that they would seek your face that they would seek justice, what is right and holy and good for all people. Father, we pray for our land that we would humble ourselves and that those of us that know you would call out to your name in repentance and humility and that we would see you do a great work in our land. Father, we need refreshment. We need repentance. We need to be a people that seek your face. And so help us as the church, as the body of Christ to do so, Father, not with judgment towards others, but with humility. Father, we lift up this community, this church, and ask that you would bless us as we seek your face about a building, that you would open up these doors and, uh, for us, and uh, we just lay this at your feet and thank you that you are our God. We trust you, not in brick and mortar. We, we put our hope in you, Father, and so we look forward to how you will answer our prayers. And this morning, Father, I just pray for our church. I pray for everyone here. Some come with great joy today celebrating good things, and we, we rejoice with them. Others come in with trial and difficulty, and we lay these things in your hands, Father, because you are our firm foundation. We rest in you, and we pray, Father, as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts and make it pleasing to you so that you may grow us in your truth. And, uh, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, turn to... Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. If you don't, it's in your bulletin. It'll be up on the screen as well. Friends, this is, a, this is a hard passage. If you've read the Bible before, if, you're, if you are a churched person, chances are you've heard this before, and I, I plead with us to hear it fresh. Every once in a while, I wish, I'm glad I'm not a new believer in essence, I like what I do for a living and so forth, but how, how great would it be to hear the Bible for the first time again? So if you're a new follower of Jesus or if you're a seeker considering the claims of Christ, this is, this is good news as you listen to this. This is the truth. This is God speaking his will to you. For those of us who've heard before, have ears to hear it again. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, go and first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and this is a terrifying word. Did you hear what he said about anger? Anger is an emotion that's actually a gift from God. It's not always sinful. We know this. Jesus was angry. Tyson mentioned just a minute ago that there is a right place for anger. There are things to be angry against. It's called righteous indignation or righteous anger. Luther called it the anger of love that is friendly towards the sinner and yet hostile to the sin. It's good, healthy anger, righteous indignation and anger that leads us to fight against injustice, that rises up to stop that which is evil, that which is broken, that which is tearing literally the fabric of of what's good and right apart in society and individual lives. We should be angry at racism. We should despise that and love those who are struggling with that heart disposition. We should be angry against addictions that are literally destroying the people we love and yet love the addict. We know that there is righteous indignation, but I have to admit, it's very rare that I am righteous in my indignation. (laughs) Even when the cause is right, even when I'm angry against injustice, I find myself taking it to murderous levels. The reason for my anger may be proper, but then the way I place it and the way I feel it and experience and the thing that I think about people and individuals, and I can get pretty angry. And I'm not sure it's always righteous. Mishandled anger is like deadly explosives, and it can blow up on you, it can blow up on others, and Jesus is warning us. There's two things I want us to see this morning from the text, and it's this. Anger is more dangerous than you realize. It is more dangerous than we realize. Some of you already figured out ways to not listen to this text very carefully. And Jesus then says, reconciliation is more powerful than you realize. It's more healing than you realize. It's, It's amazing what God can do through a heart of reconciliation. So, first, anger is more dangerous than you realize. Jesus has gathered his disciples. He's teaching them what the kingdom looks like and is like. He's telling them the type of people that will enter the kingdom, the type of people that won't, the ethics of the kingdom, uh, what he expects in the kingdom. And in essence, he's like Moses, the better Moses. He's gathering his people on the mount to deliver God's will to them. He is God. Like Moses, he gathers the people to the, to the mountain to describe the law of God. And he's, he, though, is the Lord himself. And so this isn't just some rabbi teaching saying, you know, rabbi so-and-so says this, but I say, or, you know, or says this and always qualifying by some other teacher. He is saying, I say this. You've heard it of old, but I say, I say this. So this morning he says, you've heard that it was said but to those of old, you shall not murder. Sounds good. That's right. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Yeah, that sounds right. But I say. And Jesus is not taking that first phrase to task. What he's saying is if you stop there, you're not understanding God's will. He's contrasting. He's he's in conflict, not with God's law, because he comes to fulfill the law. Jesus' conflict is with the Pharisees and their traditional interpretations of the law that figure out ways 
to truncate the law, to make it smaller, more manageable, easier to keep, and diminishes its power, keeping it from the heart. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We want to say, you're talking about literal brothers, right? And then you're in huge trouble. If you have siblings, <laughs> who has never called his brother a fool? Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, is in danger of hell. We quickly say, well, that's got to be hyperbole. There's no way that's true. Jesus says, look, you've been taught rightfully that whoever murders someone is liable of judgment. Yes, that's true. But I say that anyone who's angry also uses name-calling, disdains somebody else, is also in danger of hell and judgment because it's the, it is the heart that has led someone to the action. Jesus has been teaching that only the humble come into the kingdom. Only the poor in spirit are fit for the kingdom of God. Only those who mourn. And, and, and that's certainly, that is somewhat hyper, hyperbolic because it, surely those who enter the kingdom of God also rejoice, not only mourn, but what he's speaking to is a group of people who are judgmental, they're self-righteous, and they're hypocrites. These Pharisees, these scribes, these disciples. The other day I'm preaching, I forget the text or the topic, but I asked you guys, what is it that culture thinks about the church in the United States today? And all of you said in the first service, they think we're hypocrites. What else? I said. They think we're self-righteous. I said, what else? And you all said, they think we are judgmental. I asked the second service, you guys, the same thing. The exact same things were said. All three. I went downtown and preached there as well. What three things do the culture think about us? And I knew they would say the exact same thing. And I, I didn't answer it for them. Well, they think we're hypocrites. Yeah, what else? They think we're judgmental. Yeah, what else? They think we're self-righteous. That's who Jesus is speaking to. <laughs> Those people who think they're keeping the law, and he wants to shock us, and he's not, he's not diminishing what he's saying either about anger. What he's saying is, look, the only way you can enter the kingdom is, is this, if you realize that your anger separates you from God just as much as a murderous action. Of course, murder breaks the law, but true righteousness is a heart condition that loves their neighbor as much as they love themselves. And so when you hate somebody else, when you have bitterness that seethes for another, you're guilty. Sinclair Ferguson is an author, theologian that I keep quoting during this series, and he says, Jesus recognizes that we cannot be trusted in our judgment of the seriousness of careless speech. And he's not talking about like naughty words, although Paul talks about that, but what he's talking about is language that's filled with hatred towards another person. We treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. That is why Jesus invades our moral slumber by telling us how serious this is in the sight of God. He uses language we readily understand. Anger incurs judgment. Using terms of contempt is worthy of condemnation. And calling someone a fool fits us for hell. Would you listen to this today? 
would you please not say, you know, so-and-so really needs to hear this sermon. I'm going like, to link, I'm going to send them a link to this. Would you listen to Jesus' words this morning for you? This is a serious heart, heart problem that we have. Having an angry heart towards others, it's far more serious than we realize. Jesus means to shock us out of our assumptions, to wake us up to the way that we disdain other people, and to make us humble that we may come into the kingdom saying, I mourn, Jesus, how much I have anger in my heart and how little love I have for my neighbor. There may be someone here today who comes in and you hear this sixth commandment that you shall not murder and you, you're already cut to the core because maybe you've taken a life, literally. And what does Jesus want from you? To come in with humility and say, I have blood on my hands and I am guilty. In turn, being humbled in spirit and, and that person, Jesus says, will have a warm welcome into the kingdom of God. I believe Moses is going to be in the kingdom of God. He's guilty of murder. Even you, with blood on your hands, there, there's hope. But what about us that have murderous hearts? Jesus wants us to get to the place that we don't just say, well, I'm not guilty of this. <laughs> I've not killed anyone. I'm not guilty of manslaughter. I'm not guilty of murder. I'm not guilty of this. This, this one I've got. I've, I've kept this one, the Sixth Commandment. I'm good on that one. Jesus no, wants us to say, the heart of this <laughs> condemns me. Shock us. When we curse someone, we curse people, friends. We curse people. And their only offense is they cut us off in traffic. How dare they? And when I mean curse, not just like, I mean, the lay, if you listen to what you say in your head, in your heart, you're literally calling like hellfire and damnation on people because they've, they've veered into your lane. It may just be somebody's having a bad day, but we're literally calling hell on them, right? You've done this. I never have. You've done this. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, What's up with that? That angry, bitter heart. It's a murderous heart. I've been watching a documentary called Apocalypse, the Second World War, and I'm shocked. My wife Becky's been joining me. Like, It's on Netflix, and they, what they've done is they've taken all this old wor World War II footage. They've uh, digitized it. It's probably not even a word. They've made it digital, <laughs> and they've added color to it. So it's clear in color and it looks real and for the first time maybe in a long time maybe ever I'm, I'm seeing footage of, the wor of World War II and it feels real to me and that's good because like to me World War II is sort of a mythology my uncle was in World War II I, I saw pictures I, I heard the stories and, I, and there's sort of a mythology to it it almost like it didn't exist right and, and when we see footage it's in black and white but somehow this, this documentary has, has made it very real to me, and I keep asking this question as we watch. How did this happen? Not the war, the cause of the war. How did the land of Martin Luther do this? 
the place where the gospel exploded in power, where, where people came to Christ in, in power, that they believed that they're saved by grace through faith. They returned to the scriptures. They, they were humbled and repented, and, and the gospel went out from there. How did these people, my own ancestors, how did this happen in that land? Before the Nazis, and they were enabled by everyday people just like us, everyday Germans, normal folk, before the Nazis systematically murdered millions of people, it all started with an angry disposition among the populace. It said those damn Jews. They had a word called Untermensch. They used it for the Poles and the Serbs and the Jews and it meant subhuman. And they kept using it, and they kept using it, and they kept using it, and they pointed all their economic problems on them. Everything that was wrong in Germany was all their fault, and they pointed the finger, and they pointed the finger, and they kept saying they are subhuman. They are less than. They are less than human beings. Before anyone was rounded up and put in ghettos, there was the heart of the people and the Nazis. Before anyone was beaten or shot or put in a concentration camp, before the whole country turned a blind eye to it, there was the heart disposition that pointed the finger and said, you are less than me. That whole group of people, all these different people, you are untermensch, you are, you are less than, you're, su you're subhuman. That's how it happened. The, the heart matters, friends. What we believe about people, what we say about people, it matters. An angry heart does not always lead to murderous action, but murderous action always begins with an angry heart. And Jesus says, be very, very careful. Be very careful of your anger. Jesus means to take self-righteous religious people and to turn them into the poor in spirit. Friends, we're accused of that all day long. And I'm not saying you are self-righteous or judgmental. And in fact, honestly, if this, as I talk about this church to other friends of mine who are pastors and stuff, I talk about how sweet this congregation is, how joyful, how loving, how open you are to people. Like, friends, if you're visiting this church, I'm not, I'm not saying we're the best church. I can give you 10 names of 10 great other, other great churches in this city. But this is such a beautiful gracious congregation however new valley you gracious beautiful congregation hear this there's still judgmental spirit within us and there we are still self-righteous and there's still so many ways in which we're angry and bitter let's turn from it jesus means to take us self-righteous religious people and to turn us to the poor in spirit humbled who would enter the kingdom of god now, there are different types of anger. We've already mentioned there's righteous indignation. There's righteous anger. Rarely do we actually have that. But it does exist. There's extinct, instinctive anger. Like, you hit your thumb. You're angry. I hope that by I, the time I die that I'm so sanctified, right, that I, that doesn't cause me to get angry. But right now, I'm in a spiritual state that if I hit my thumb, You'll probably hear things you wish your pastor hadn't said. Like, I just cussed in the sermon. I'm already in trouble. Like, uh, you're going to email me already. You drop a glass on the tile. You, you walk into the house, and your dog has gone number two on your carpet. These are all things that have happened to me recently. Like, 
There's instinctive anger. Love to be able to grow past that. I don't know. I don't know. The scariest, though, is meditative anger. This is the type of anger that's really dangerous and yet so hard to come overcome. This is the anger uh, that grows in its bitterness towards someone. This is, this is the anger that we let, you know, simmer, and, 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 and it's like we, we, we marinate it. It becomes like a fine wine. We let it grow in its taste and its dynamic. We feed it. Meditative anger. If anger is like an explosive, then much of our anger is fueled by unmet expectations. This is, this is where I want to go with this. I think anger is like an explosive, and, and we have to be very, very careful with it. And we, we fuel it, we let it grow, we meditate on it by all the unmet expectations we have in our life. And then you combine that. So if, if, if it's an explosive, then the fuel for the explosive is unmet expectations I've been reading this author named James Bryan Smith. This is what he's been saying. But the match is fear of something you want too much, like Tyson's talking about, getting blocked. You can't have it. You want it too much. It's a good thing. You've elevated to a God-level thing. And you live your life with all this expectation. And I told you last week, men, most of us are very angry. It's true. And it's largely because we're living with all these expectations that we have throughout our day. We feel like there's all these things that we must have, success, approval, peace, things to go right. And then something happens that causes us to fear that we're not going to get what we really want. And we get angry. We all carry these expectations out there with us every day. We do. When I get on the 10, heading downtown, and I have to do that a lot, I expect it to take about 15 minutes from here, right? So I get out on Chandler Boulevard, I get on the 10, and I have to go downtown for a meeting. And I expect that it's going to take about 15 minutes. That's a dumb expectation. You have no idea what's going to happen on the 10. And I'll get on at like 2.30 or 3 and still have that expectation. Coming back this way, I'll be like, I still expect it to not slow me down. And I'm heading somewhere, and I won't budget enough time, right, for some meeting, and I will get angry. I expect that when I drive home and I hit the little button that I don't even know how it works, like magic flies through the air, you know, out of my car and causes this door to open, right? And if I push that button and the door doesn't go up, I expect that my sweet dog, Molly, knows that our carpet is not a bathroom. <laughs> and I, I come home to find number two on our nice carpet. I expect when I come home after a day of frustrations on the 10 and frustrations from stuff and like life and work and ministry and relationships and just exhaustion that when I come home into my home this is a crazy expectation but that it would be a place of shalom and peace and men we all kind of have this we do we do and we have this unrealistic expectation that if you're married that like your wife should just be Ah, she should just be so at peace and just ready to welcome you in like and with a hug and here's your cocktail sir sit down you know and like <laughs> Like, that's sort of the expectation we bring into this thing. 
But we walk in not to shalom, but into chaos where, why aren't you doing your homework? And, and I've had a hard day at work, and I don't know why I would expect her to not feel the same thing. She's been dealing with traffic and work and trying to manage our, our schedules. And we all have this huge laundry list of expectations about work, family, friendship, goals, marriage. And in many ways, it feels like the whole universe is set against us from us getting these things met. Right? It's true. And you know what? It is. The whole universe is set against you from getting your expectations met. It actually is. Well, that's kind of negative. <laughs> but it's true. Have you read Genesis 3? We don't live in the promised land anymore. We live in the shadow lands, C.S. Lewis says. We live in a broken place where people die, where people get sick, where cars break down and block lanes on the interstate where you might get a cold and you don't have a healthy day or the flu and you have difficulty or you might get some really bad disease or live with chronic pain or, or just your marriage is much harder than you thought and your wife isn't the same person you thought she would be or your husband or whatever or your kids are much more difficult or work is more difficult or you haven't made the, the, the kind of pay you thought you would make or you get the idea. You live in a broken, fallen world where life just doesn't work out the way you thought it should be but we keep living with this desire for it to be right, and what Tyson said is so true. That's actually a good expectation. Do you know what you long for with that expectation? The kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, but don't expect it right here fully just yet. It's coming. In this world, you'll have trouble. Put your hope, though, in the kingdom of God. When I was in high school, I was always helping my dad build a brush pile. We had several acres, and he was always gathering stuff for brush piles, <laughs> at least quarterly. And th this one time, I remember it vividly, we were building a brush pile, we are gathering wood and stuff out, you know, that's whatever, needs to be burned, all kinds of things. And my dad was also notorious for <laughs> doing things that people really shouldn't do, and he would, as he's doing them, he'd say, like, now don't do this, you know. <laughs> And, and he, my nickname was Ding. He called me Ding. Don't call me that. And <laughs> he would pour gasoline to start the brush file. And as he would do this, Ding, don't do this. Like, <laughs> it's not a good idea. Light it, and it always was fine. But we were building a brush pile once, and uh, he poured gasoline all over it and kind of forgot about it. And then we built more to the brush pile. We added more, and we added more. And they poured more gasoline and we threw the match on, it literally exploded, and we were blown back, you know, several feet, and we should have been burned, but by God's grace, we weren't hurt, but we were blown away. This is what anger is like. We're, we're, we're dealing with a deadly explosive, and we let it build and build our expectations and frustrations life, build and build and build, and then you want something so bad, and you're not getting it. It's become an idol to you, and you want it, and it's getting blocked, and you get incredibly angry. It's frustrating when you're late in traffic. That's frustrating, but we get angry because there's something else we want really bad that we know that, that traffic's going to keep us from getting. I get frustrated. It's control, really. I had this weird expectation that I'm the sovereign of the I-10 and life in general. And, but what we 
I, I want you to think highly of me. If, if we have a meeting, I want to be there on time so you don't think I'm disrespecting you. Or, and I want you to think I'm a responsible person. And if I'm running late, I want your approval. And now that's getting blocked. You're going to think less of me. You're going to think I'm a bad person. And I start worrying about that. And I start getting angry. Angry at myself. Why didn't I budget more time? Angry at the traffic. Angry, angry, angry. It's frustrating when you don't meet your goals at work, your goals in your marriage, your goals for your kids, your goals financially, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have to have that thing, that money, that job, that success, whatever, and it gets blocked, anger. James Bryan Smith, this author I've been reading, says, each day I estimate we encounter anywhere from 10 to 100 expectations that don't get met, and we cannot control them. I'd say it's more towards the 100, not the 10, right? But we can control our fears by living in the kingdom of God. We have all these expectations that we really can't control, but we try to, but we can control living in the reality of the kingdom of God, and this is where we don't try very hard. I know I don't sometimes. There is a narrative, there are competing narratives in our hearts and our mind. One is filled with faith and one is agnosticism and atheism, but that's kind of where we live. Most of us that are Christians, we actually live as functional atheists or agnostics, like as if God is not real. Rather than thanking God that he may be protecting us from some accident down the road, we're angry in traffic that he's, you know, my goal is being blocked. He may be saving your life, but we're angry. There's a false narrative that we tell ourselves in unbelief, and it's this. It's things like this. I'm alone. I'm alone in the universe. Things always have to go as I want them to go. Something will, terrible is going to happen if I make a mistake. I must be in control. Life should be fair. I need to be perfect. But there's a kingdom narrative that Jesus is calling us into to live out of. There's a kingdom narrative that says, I'm never alone. Jesus is always with me through the, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in control. I am definitely not in control, but there's a king who has a firm foundation, and he is in control. I live in a broken, fallen world where it just isn't fair. But Christ is fair, and he's just. And his kingdom is coming. Jesus is my perfection. I don't have to be perfect. Not, I'm not going to be perfect. I have one who is perfect, though, on my behalf. What narrative, what story are you telling yourself? It's the wrong stories that keep leading us to this angry life, friends. We're believing the wrong story. The second point is this. Reconciliation is more healing than you recognize or realize. Reconciliation is more powerful than you recognize or realize. Jesus says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift before you go to the altar. Why? Isaiah said it's that to obey is better than sacrifice. But we want the sacrifice. We want to look good. We want to write the check or make the gift or do the right thing or go to church or seem religious. And everyone, and, and we think that's buying us righteousness. But Jesus says, no, true obedience from the heart is the right thing. That is the, that is the gospel thing. 
We would rather leave a gift than do the hard thing, which is reconcile with somebody that has something against us. And that's what the Pharisee, the way of the Pharisee always is. It's external versus internal, always. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you, you come here, this is, the equivalent would be to make an offering. You, you've come here, you've worshipped. Jesus was saying it'd be better to not write the check and do the right religious thing outwardly. It'd be better to actually go and do the inward thing, which is to be reconciled to your brother. Rather than come sing a song, and I'm not saying skip church, right? But he is saying there comes a time the inward thing is the better thing. Sinclair Ferguson says here Jesus is showing us that when an activity is forbidden in God's word, do not murder, its positive counterpart is commanded. If we are not to engage in physical or verbal murder, we are to engage in reconciliation. Friends, the gospel is that we are reconciled to God, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to reconcile us, that we were enemies of God, and yet God sent the Son in order to win us back to the Father, that we may be reconciled to him. Reconciliation came at a huge cost, a huge price. It was the price of his own son. You know this. If you, you know this. And if we, who have been reconciled to God, not by our own righteousness, but by God's love and grace, how then can we, in turn, not be ones who reconcile? Forgiveness is hard. If you hurt me a little, it's pretty easy to forgive you. You hurt me bad, abuse me, really hurt me. If I hurt you really badly, or abuse you, or do something horrible, it's very hard to forgive. How do we do that? When we sin against one another, really hurt one another, you know what we do? We are building a debt against one another. And debts have to be paid. And if I am angry against you and bitter against you and I gossip about you or I do evil against you or physical harm, I am making you pay for what you've done. Forgiveness, though, is you paying the debt. I sinned against God, but God paid the debt. He forgave. You sin against me. I can pay the debt because I may want to curse you, but I choose not to. That's me forgiving you, paying the debt. I may want to tell somebody what you did to me, but I'm, I'm not going to. That's me paying the debt. I may want to hit you. You may want to hit me. You don't. <laughs> that's you paying the debt, right? You get what I'm saying? Like, that's paying the debt. You're paying the debt down. You're actually forgiving. Well, how do you do that? I don't feel like doing that. I don't even want to do that. I don't want to forgive that person. They hurt me too badly. How do I even start? I don't feel like doing that. Don't wait till you feel like doing it, first of all. <laughs> Begin to do it. I've heard that forgiveness is like a, a long train, a very, very long, long train, with a, the caboose being the feelings at the end. Like It may take years, friends, before you feel the forgiveness that you've forgiven the person. But you keep doing the hard thing of choosing to forgive, choosing to forgive, and eventually the feelings will be unified with the action. You say, well, I've tried, I've tried to reconcile. They won't reconcile. 
if I've learned anything in life, I can't control people. I, I really did used to think I could. <laughs> I can't. I can't control what other people do. What I can control is what Jesus tells me to do. If I go to the altar and I know that somebody has a problem with me, I can go to them and I can't control them. But I can write an email, I can make a call, I can visit them, I can try to have a face-to-face, I can literally, I can try to be reconciled. I cannot control the other person though. So you do what you can do. And you live peaceably and you keep paying the debt. Because Jesus gladly paid the debt that we had between us and the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you for your Son and the power of reconciliation. And we pray against this great problem of our hearts, Lord, of anger murderous anger that we so often have for other people, people made in your image, people that we should be loving and serving, we have bitterness and anger towards. This is a hard word for us to take in, that that our anger towards our brother puts us in danger, but Lord, we, we beg you to show us the reality and to turn from it, to keep repenting, to keep being humble in spirit and repenting, turning back to you, to reject the anger, to reject the bitterness and the use of words that tear others down. Help us to reject these things, God. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.